I've always held a fascination with Tsarist Russia. There's something mysterious and magical about that place, close enough to most of the rest of Western civilization to be relatable, uh, especially for someone with, you know, an English or a German heritage, but strange and distant at the same time. The architecture, the music, the fact that everyone has a pet bear, it's like a frozen, very intimidating fairy tale. And their books are so long, so unbelievably long. So lengthy, in fact, that you can write a three-hour musical just off of 70 pages. Well, musical feels like a small description. Like saying that pre-Soviet Russian culture is fancy. Today we dive into a slice of that classic Russian decadence. Extravagance and spectacle on a scale never before seen. Chandeliers and caviar, duels, princesses, soldiers, the loftiest palaces, and the lowliest of men. So fancy that everyone has nine different names. Welcome to the world that Leo Tolstoy wrote and Dave Malloy dared to recreate. Welcome to Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Hello, my name is Will Cloud and you're listening to the Script Library Podcast, your one-stop listening shop for all your play script needs. Today we are diving into one of my top five favorite musicals, adapted from certainly one of my top five favorite novels of all time. Nominated for 12 Tony Awards, which it should have won all of, but we don't talk about Dear Evan Hansen on this podcast. Uh, Dave Malloy is certainly known for breaking from tradition, and at a glance, Great Comet would seem like a mangled jumble of pop, EDM, opera, all tied up like a pierogi and slapped haphazardly across a theater. But upon closer inspection, there is a meticulous crafting, a careful attention to detail within the chaos. A reading now from the back cover. From the celebrated and award-winning composer Dave Malloy comes Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, an electro-pop opera based on a scandalous slice of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Following a critically acclaimed premiere at Ars Nova in New York City, a subsequent off-Broadway transfer and opening on Broadway, this award-winning musical expands the possibilities for the genre with its daring score and bold storytelling. As it said, this was the result of Dave Malloy's artist-in-residence position at Ars Nova, well known for pushing boundaries in theater. When it opened in 2012 in the basement of the theater, few could imagine just how quickly the show would take off. Like a comet flying through the night sky, within four years, the show was premiering on Broadway at the Imperial Theater. The show closed after a little more than a year of production. Now, if you look at the cast lists, Ars Nova to Off-Broadway to Broadway, you'll notice something quite lovely. The casts are very, very similar. For the leads, there's a relatively small number of changes that occur. And on the production side, most of the designers and the director, Rachel Chobkin, were involved in all three productions. Really, one of the only major differences in the cast is that they started adding ensemble members in. Uh, with Malloy being heavily involved throughout the entire process, there was a strong consistency through each iteration. Uh, there's an off-Broadway recording and a Broadway recording that you can listen to, and there are some minor changes in, in lyrics, uh, but I actually think they're for the better. That's another story entirely. I don't know if this will matter much to anyone, but it was important enough to be placed in the production notes. The Almer and Louise Maud's uh, 1922 translation of War and Peace was the primary rendition of the book, uh, though others were consulted in uh, the writing of this musical. Like I said, there's something incredibly magical about Russian culture to me. And in my opinion, some of the best shows involve uh, Russian or an Eastern European culture. Fiddler on the Roof, Chess, and of course, this show. 
Certainly modern acting wouldn't exist if not for Russian artists. Uh, and like I mentioned in my introduction, Russian culture is distant enough from Western European culture to be foreign, but not similar in any way to any other culture, uh, Asian, Middle Eastern, African, etc., uh, that have been so, I guess, romanticized um, in pop culture. Uh, romanticized might not be the best term, but that's kind of the only way I can think to describe it. Uh, Russian culture isn't often portrayed in uh, popular media. It's kind of like looking in a funhouse mirror. Again, similar to what's dominated Western art, and yet not. Um, and as I said, there's, there's a method to the madness of Comet that really captures that strangeness well. I'll return to that later. Uh, first, the synopsis. Uh, sorry, actually second. Triggering content warning first. There's a little bit of language, uh, mostly just crude... Uh, language, use of the slur against the Romani, um, there are themes of adultery, suicide, depression, uh, certainly quite a lot of drinking and talking of drinking. Uh, one of the characters also attempts to kidnap the main character and force her into an elopement. Uh, now, I I've listened to this show countless times. I know I said a dozen earlier. Did I? I'm not sure if I did. I might have written this joke in and have forgotten what I actually wrote. Well, however many times I have listened to this show, I've listened to it a lot. Uh, and I've even broken my rule and watched a bootleg. I completely forgot that this was a sung-through musical uh, through all of that. So it kind of makes it actually hard to read the show. Um, so if you do want to listen to this... I would recommend actually just listening to the recording. You don't actually have to read the script. Uh, other, other than to get a really nice uh, director's note at the beginning. Um, and there's some cool production notes um, beyond that. Uh, the script is pretty cool itself. It has the great comet crest, if you've seen that, on the cover, so which differentiates it from normal uh, play scripts. And I, again, I don't do live performance reviews, but there are a couple of moments from the OBC that are pretty awesome, and if I remember to talk about them, I will. Now, on to the synopsis. Finally. <laughs> we open the show with a prologue, which attempts to explain the characters and who they are. It's actually a great character plot. Um, Natasha is young and beautiful, precocious and intelligent. She's engaged to Andre, who is off fighting against Napoleon. Her protectors, Maria and Sonia... Uh, are also uh, there. Wow, writing, William. Uh, Maria is the epitome of classic Russian aristocracy. Sonia is kind and good and pure, uh, Natasha's cousin. Uh, Natasha is pursued by Anatole, the handsomest and most vile man in all Russia, only outdone in villainy by his sister Helene. Uh, she's given a very apt description in this show, but since this is a family podcast, I won't repeat it here. Uh, there's other minor characters, and of course, Pierre. I don't say this with any authority, but I, I feel as if Tolstoy kind of made Pierre in his own image. Uh, just a bit. Uh, he's an illegitimate son turned heir. Wealthy, amiable, but awkward and ill-fitted for the life of an aristocrat. His books and his booze are his only way to deal with a life unworth living, and a marriage ruined by Helene's lifestyle. The musical, like the book, is divided into parts and chapters within those parts, instead of scenes and acts. In part one, Natasha arrives in Moscow to stay with Maria. 
She tries to meet with Andre's family, but Prince Bolkonsky, Andre's father, is not a very nice man, and Andre's sister Mary is rather disagreeable. Natasha is left alone and missing her fiancé a great deal. On part two, Natasha is taken to the opera, a grotesque and bizarre piece of art that she is both drawn to and repelled by. While there, she meets Anatole, who is instantly taken by her beauty. If there ever was a lesson in not going to the clubs, it's part three. Anatole, Pierre, and their friend Dolokhov go drinking. Helene meets them there, and after a confrontation, Pierre and Dolokhov engage in a duel. Pierre nearly dies and then proceeds to have an incredibly brilliant emotional crisis. Uh, the next day, Natasha and her family go to church, and afterward, Helene visits to invite Natasha to a masquerade ball. However, this is a thinly veiled ruse to get the girl to Anatole. Natasha goes to the ball, and the act ends with Anatole seducing the young Rostova and stealing a kiss. Act 2, or Part 4, begins with a series of letters, uh, the song, Letters, and Natasha ends her engagement to Andre. Sonia uncovers the plan uh, that Natasha and Anatole have to elope and conspires to stop them. Sonia may work hard, but Dolokhov works harder. He and Anatole plan to kidnap Natasha with the help of Balaga the Troika driver. Amaria works harder still, and was prepared for the hooligans. She thwarts the abduction, mostly by being the most intimidating character in the entire show. Now, part 5 is a kind of an interesting series of conversational songs. First, Maria pleads with Pierre to deal with Anatole, which he swiftly does. Pierre is very reserved throughout most of the show, very introspective, but in this moment with Anatole, we see a very aggressive and frightening man. Uh, he convinces Anatole to disappear off to St. Petersburg, just in time for Andre to return home from the war. And Natasha grew very ill after the abduction, and it was left to Pierre to visit his friend. Andre rejects any sort of redemption for his ex-fiancé and leaves. And then finally Pierre visits Natasha and delivers the most important bit of dialogue in the entire show. We'll talk more about it later, but he delivers her hope and receives hope in himself. In the final and titular song, Pierre travels through the snowy streets of Moscow, staring up at the great comet of 1812, seeing it not as a portent of doom, but a symbol of hope and of a future happy ending. Quote, it seems to me that this comet feels me, feels my softened and uplifted soul, and my newly melted heart now blossoming into a new life. End of part five, end of act, end of play. I have many, many thoughts, but first, scene work. The part of the show where Larry comes out to sing a silly, wait, wrong show. Obviously, there's not a lot of scenes in this show uh, since it's sung through, but there are several phenomenal solos that would be great for auditions or for vocal classes. Uh, please forgive me in advance, I'm not great at knowing what songs are for which part, but I will do my best. Uh, no One Else uh, might be the most beautiful love ballad in all of musical theater. Uh, Natasha sings this pretty early on, remembering her love for Andre, uh, back in the first act before things start to fall apart. It's light, hopeful, has some strong belting moments. Uh, if I'm correct, it is a soprano piece. Now, I've done Dust and Ashes for both auditions and vocal competitions. It's powerful, dark, beautiful. Plenty of room for acting with a number of technical elements, mix, belt, dynamics uh, that make it fun both as a piece to sing and learn and as a piece to perform. 
great for baritones and baritenors. I don't think it's too low for true tenors, but mileage may vary. Now, Sonia alone feels less like a musical theater song and more like an indie folk ballad. Uh, I think Britton Ashford's voice lends to that vibe as well. But it is a gorgeous, poignant uh, song for an alto voice. Okay, where to begin? Let's actually start off with the ending. Um, there's a really nice introduction, like I said, uh, by Rachel Chavkin in the script uh, about the origin of the show, uh, kind of how Dave Malloy kind of pitched the idea to her, and then uh, one of her favorite moments. Now, the last ten minutes or so of the show might be some of the best ten minutes in all of musical theater, but there's only one bit of dialogue, one bit of, of, of spoken word in this entire show. And it's during Pierre and Natasha's conversation at the very end. Uh, of course, the conversation leading up uh, through the song is Pierre telling Natasha that Andre won't forgive her and won't take her back or even acknowledge uh, her apology. Natasha is in her most vulnerable moment in the entire show. You know, she's, she's incredibly ill. She feels as if her life is over. She feels as if she's thrown away everything good that she had. She feels worthless. And she says all of this to Pierre. The music stops. And Pierre responds with this. Quote, If I were not myself, but the brightest, handsomest, best man on earth, and if I were free, I would get down on my knee this minute and ask you for your hand and for your love. Pierre has struggled the entire show with his identity, with what his life is and what he wants it to be. He wishes he was a better person, that his life was more than it was. He feels alone and lost and without purpose. And so to that, he turns to his alcohol and his books, and it just is a vicious cycle. And anybody who, who's dealt with depression and anxiety probably is familiar with that cycle in some way or another. But in that moment... In the only dialogue, I want to, I can't stress this enough, the only dialogue that is spoken in the entire show, he reminds Natasha of who she truly is, in spite of her current circumstance, and he reminds himself of what he wishes he could be. It's such a powerful moment, like I, I tear up just thinking about it, because he is giving her hope by telling her that she is worthy of love and of appreciation from someone who is good. And he's giving hope to himself by talking about the man he wants to become. Um, there's a lot of thoughts I have on this, but they're probably all too personal to throw out on the internet. So, Needless to say, this is one of, if not my favorite moment in all of musical theater. And the more I sort of research and, and analyze it, the more impactful it is. Um, now to give context to the final song and the comet, uh, it's kind of interesting. In the, in the book, after the comet appears, Napoleon invades Russia. Um, and a whole bunch of the characters die, either because of that or... Um, if I remember correctly, please don't quote me on this, I believe Helene commits suicide in the book. Um, but a lot of characters die, Napoleon invades, of course, if you know your Russian history, you know that they burned Moscow to prevent it from falling into French hands. 
Pierre is captured while trying to assassinate Napoleon. Uh, you sort of see bits and pieces of his obsession with Napoleon um, earlier in the in the musical. There's quite a bit of obsession in the book. Like, I think his first conversation that he shows, like, the first time you see him in the book, he gets into this huge debate over how great Napoleon is. But, of course, that changes, and he at some point gets to a place where he um, he hates Napoleon, and he wants to kill him, and he tries it, and he fails. The world kind of does seem to end, but there is hope. Pierre escapes by a providential miracle. Natasha survives the invasion, and in the end, they actually get married. Um... Like I said, Helene dies at some point before that, good riddance. Uh, but Pierre saw that there was a bright future, in spite of the darkness in his current life. There was a happy ending in that comet. Uh, now, I know I'll sound like a broken record, but I love the coordinated chaos in this show. There is so much energy and vibrance to it. The ensemble, most of whom play instruments, are constantly leaping about, creating this world of 19th century Russia. Uh, the set itself is a jumble of staircases and chandeliers, fancy pattern carpets and gilded railing. It's a mashup of 1800s Russian splendor and 2000s American nightclub energy. The music is, is a bizarre mashup of folk music, EDM, jazz-influenced, indie folk. As I described it before, it's a cacophony. Harmonies that defy convention, scores that sound more like a German nightclub than Broadway, and then 30 seconds later, some of the most beautiful musical theater ballads of all time. Everything about this play makes the characters feel larger than life, and yet more honest and raw. Speaking of characters, something that I love about Russian literature is how it approaches the human condition. While contemporary English and French authors tended to deal with humanity as a whole, with sweeping epics and wide-angle lenses focusing on injustice and social ills, think Christmas Carol, Great Expectations, Les Miserables, Russian authors tended to do deep dives into the soul. Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky is a great example. 600-plus pages, just about a man who murders his neighbor, and his sort of descent into madness over trying to hide it. Pretty much every no Russian novel that I've read, and I've read it at least two, uh, is more introspective. And though the stories might be incredibly long and the tales might be massive and epic in scale, it's the individual soul that stays the focus. And I do love Les Mis, but Great Comet speaks more closely to my soul. Granted, uh, Pierre and I kind of have more similarities uh, than like Valjean or Javert. But the raw emotions laid bare on stage are more truthful and powerful than the rather polished, grandiose nature of Les Mis. The same can be said of the books. Uh, again, not to discredit that show, uh, Les Mis, because it does a very good job at capturing the essence of the novel. But I kind of find the Russian way more enjoyable. Now, certainly, Malloy took liberties in writing this show, but a good adaptation doesn't just stay accurate to the events and the characters but it captures the essence of the very work. There is soul in good art, and a good adaption carries a piece of that soul with it. The way that Great Comet is written and formulated instantly transports me to 1800s Russia. I feel like I need a giant fur coat and a plate full of pierogies. As the final song plays, I close my eyes and, kind of like Rachel Chavkin would do every night she watched the show, I imagine the Great Comet streaking across the night sky, 
filling me with the same hope and joy that it did Pierre. During the duel, I, I feel the tension rising as the bass pounds in my ears. I feel the pain and the longing in each of the solo songs. I'm entranced by the letters that they write. If you haven't listened to this show yet, please do. It's an experience. It may not be your cup of tea, but it is art in a most pure and chaotic form. There's not many companies producing it right now, but the rights are available, so hopefully more places will start doing it. Um, if you get a chance to see it or be in it, don't hesitate. The world needs more shows like Great Comet, shows that push the envelope of what a musical looks like, but that also give us a look into the human soul, uh, something that's more than just shallow entertainment. Thank you all for joining me today. Again, I really appreciate you all listening to the show, supporting the Instagram page. Um, if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, you can find me at the WC Cloud on Twitter or at the Script Library on Instagram. You can listen to this episode on all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple, etc. Um, real quickly, I have a request. I would love to do an episode on some original works. If you have a script that you'd like to promote or that you're comfortable uh, letting me read through and review, I would absolutely love to. Um, you know, if it's a one act, that's okay. Maybe I can get a couple of one acts and do an episode on both of them at the same time. Um, but yeah, if you have a, a, a script that you've written that you feel comfortable letting another person look at, I would absolutely love to do that. Uh, in the meantime, we will be looking at She Kills Monsters. And I have a couple of episodes lined up uh, beyond that. But She Kills Monsters is next week. Uh, so... Uh, strap on your D&D &D hats or whatever it is you wear when you play tabletop role-playing games. Uh, capes, you know, suits of armor, I don't know. I don't know what you people do. Uh, anyway, my name is Will Cloud. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode, and thank you for stopping by the Script Library.